I think, you know, the, the, the doctrine of the beatific vision gets pushed away as perhaps part of Roman Catholicism rather than being an integral part of, you know, historic Protestant Protestant theology. So I think when you kind of factor all of those things in there as well, that kind of brings us to where we are so that if you do mention the beatific vision, people are like, you know, why would you bring that up? <laughs> Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. I am Matthew Barrett, your host, and today is a special episode, actually a reoccurring episode, because uh, we have a lot of fun ahead of us uh, with the Credo Alliance back. And if you listen to the first two episodes, well, I hope you will enjoy these next episodes in which we get a focus on maybe some topics that are out of the box. What's the purpose of the Credo Alliance? Well, we're bringing together uh, some of the best theologians today, many of whom are Credo Fellows as well. And the, the goal is really simple, but I hope inspirational. We want to encourage the next generation to retrieve classical Christianity in all of its beauty for the sake of Reformation and the Church today. And I have with me, of course, our usual suspects. So Fred Sanders, who you know well, professor of theology at Tory Honors College. Also Scott Swain, president of RTS Orlando, and J.V. Fesco, also professor of theology and history at RTS, except in Jackson. It's great to have you guys back on. Good to be here. Yeah, likewise. So let's do something out of the box this time. We had so much fun last time just talking about our stories. How did we first encounter classical theology? I think sometimes people associate, rightly so, classical theology with the doctrine of God or perhaps Christology. And for good reason, we go to those doctrines. But sometimes I've had this experience. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm teaching uh, or, or just talking in conversations with others about classical theology, there's this assumption that, oh, okay, we'll talk about the doctrine of God, then we put classical theology back in its closet, and then we move on to, to other things. And I find myself having to say, hold on, actually, it's not just a point you check off or a box that you check on, on your doctrine list, but it's much more than that. It's very pervasive, dare we call it, perhaps even a system, but it has an organic nature to it in which it really does pervade the whole scope of Christian theology, and sometimes in ways that people don't expect. And so today, I want to talk about eschatology. And and I think when I say eschatology, again, there's all kinds of assumptions going off <laughs> in people's minds when we think about where eschatology has been in the last, goodness, 20th century, well, the last 50 years, I suppose we could say, the things that typically get attention 
are all the hot topics like is there a rapture is there a tribulation is there a millennium and if so when and how long and and all that or though these might be more you know minute discussions sometimes eschatology is brought up solely with an emphasis on the material there can be a, a strong emphasis in Christian culture on, say, for example, transformationalism. And so sometimes that carries over into eschatology, and there is this fixation then on, okay, let's get away from anything that sounds too platonic, like an intermediate state or the, you know, the existence of the soul. And what we really need to focus on is the is the new earth and and what that will look like with our resurrection in our resurrection state. All that to say, not that these are not worthy topics. I don't want to give that impression. But when you mention the beatific vision, you get strange looks. At least I do. The, especially in the land of Protestantism. <laughs> A lot of times people want to know, what is that? And why should I even give it a hearing? Am I alone here? Or have you had similar experiences? And if so, what do you think this says about not just the state of eschatology, but maybe the state of theology itself? Yeah, I mean, one one way into this is if you tend to think of classical theism as, okay, well, that's a doctrine of God, right? Well, yes. And so if you manage to think about eschatology in a properly theocentric way, then all, all the work that you've invested in that doctrine of God is going to be right there available and accessible to inform your eschatology. So that's almost a merely formal observation to say that uh, one of the tests of whether your doctrine of God makes a difference to your eschatology is the test question of whether your eschatology is adequately theocentric. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. I think while the last maybe 25, 30 years of evangelical, evangelical eschatology has perhaps moved away from debates about prophecy charts and you know, Schofield study Bibles, kind of stuff I grew up with. I think a lot of it has moved in directions where, while affirming important things like the resurrection of the body, a new heavens and a new earth, those kinds of things, those affirmations have been primarily deployed to talk about kind of Christian action right now. Right. And like, so if we believe in the resurrection of the body, or if we believe that God's going to transform the earth, then this particular course of action in politics or in the environment or whatever can gain meaning. And you see a lot of this discussion, even like faith and work discussions. You can tell people your work is meaningful because God cares about the earth. It's going to abide forever. And those kinds of emphases aren't wrong, but there is a way of kind of de-emphasizing something that is very important is that the doctrine of God is not just kind of the first doctrine in the system, right? It's the last doctrine in the system in the book of Revelation, you know, alpha and omega, first and last, beginning and end. Those are all divine names. And I think a kind of theocentric system of theology should in our eschatology bring us back to that doctrine of God as well as our blessed hope. I also think that there's some, we could make some broader observations historically, culturally, sociologically, in that uh, in the 19th century, you had great suspicion of Roman Catholic immigrants. 
uh, because they would not, uh, you know, uh, they wouldn't become part of local communities. They, they started their own schools. They had their own churches. Uh, so there was a lot of, um, uh, you know, fear of, of Roman Catholic immigrants. I think with uh, Vatican II, Vatican I and papal infallibility, you had a lot of, you know, Protestants wanting to push back away from Rome. When you combine that with the shift, say, at, at Princeton Seminary, where, you know, Charles Hodge had to get Geiger to translate Turretin's Institutes into English because his students weren't as, you know, skilled in Latin so that they couldn't read them in Latin anymore. That was perhaps one little signal that the, the broader culture was shifting and they were losing access to historic Protestant texts that were still in Latin. And then when you combine it with the observations that, you know, Fred and, and Scott are making here about the shift in attention and this kind of anti-Roman Catholic kind of push from a lot of what we would call evangelicals or Protestants, I think, you know, the the, the doctrine of the beatific vision gets pushed away as perhaps part of Roman Catholicism rather than being an integral part of, you know, historic Protestant Protestant theology. So I think when you kind of factor all of those things in there as well, that kind of brings us to where we are so that if you do mention the beatific vision, people are like, you know, why would you bring that up? <laughs> do you think, I mean, this is, let me just throw this out there as well, even biblically, because I know that I, I think a lot of Protestants, even those that are reading their Bible and really trying to pursue that, Maybe those who come into seminary and and they're serious, they 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 too seem to to assume well the beatific vision that's not in the Bible, and this is just systematic theology that has this interesting idea. In my experience, one of the things that I have found helpful is is just taking them through texts that they have read, they know, and pointing out. The, where it is, and and oftentimes the response I get is a is a bit of an embarrassment, <laughs> like oh, I didn't pay attention to that before. I didn't even think about that, and it's it's right there in the text. Think of like First John chapter three. Yeah, it's so it's just so direct. It's so explicit, which I guess raises maybe a question we we should address head on is what is the beatific vision. And more than that, how, how do we make sense of it biblically as well as theologically? Where do you start? Yeah, I mean, First John 3 is great. We can name a couple other passages. I, I do want to point out something about some of these passages before we rehearse them. Is So the grain of truth in the objection that you mentioned, Matt, is the beatific vision is not in Scripture sort of in a narrated way. Like there's not, yeah, a, yeah. There's not a story. Um, that's, you know, directly narrated where characters go through a set of things and then they behold God and that's unspooled in a narrative sort of a way. So if you're coming at this with certain strengths in biblical theology and narrated doctrines, I love those. Those are great. There's a home base for me, but they're going to leave out certain doctrines. And so mm. just typically narrating eschatology in general is this mega challenge, like whatever kind of eschatology you're doing, kind of trying to lay it all out as a story is why you end up generating a lot of charts and arguing about them. 
And like imagine a sort of a Larkin dispensational chart that moved progressively, historically, narratively toward beatific vision. It just, you do have to get access to it conceptually, doctrinally, and through things like the nature of God and salvation. And so I just think that's the the way to go. And it also partly explains why this has been a bit of a weak spot. Yeah. yeah. Another way of saying it would be just as God being the source of all things is not a statement about something that happened at kind of time stamp point one. Right? Once upon a time, God is the source. The of ontological all beginning of all things. So saying God is the end of all things, that of him, through him, to him are all things, is also not saying it's a timestamp thing. This is this is the outcome of a story or whatever. We're talking about the we're talking about God under the aspect of the good, the supreme good, the final good to which we are act uh, directed. And when you think about the beatific vision of that topic, then all of a sudden a whole host of texts start coming to play. So Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I have asked for. That which I will seek. And again, think of seeking, searching for the good. Okay. What's the good thing that the psalmist wants? To behold God's beauty, to be satisfied with his presence. And this is what Moses asked for in Exodus 33. Show me your glory. And, and the context is, right, God has just said, I'm going to fulfill my promise of giving you the promised land, but I'm not going to go in your midst. And Moses says, no, the distinguishing blessing that you give us is yourself and your presence with us. And in that context, he says, show me your glory. The God is the highest good, seeing God is the highest good. So there's a, God is the last thing in a teleological sense. And, and, and once we see that that's how scripture speaks of it, I think a bunch of texts start kind of hmm. falling into place. Yeah, I think there, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, John. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, Scott, there's there's a difference between teleology and eschatology. You know, eschatology is actual, like history's real, <laughs> and an eschatos is not just the same as a telos. But I wouldn't want to try to think through eschatology without the tool of teleology. I mean, there's there's no way you'd kind of open up the conceptual space if you didn't think that the chief end of man, right, has to have end in the teleological sense before it can make sense in the eschatological sense. Yeah, eschatology is the end of history, but it's also the end of our natures, right? It's the goal of our natures, and God is the end of both uh, in that sense. And I think it's also so fundamental just to the to the, to the the scriptures, and it's a basic fundamental desire of every old faithful Old Testament Israelite, and we rehearse it, and every time we say the ironic blessing that, you know, that God, we will look at the face of God, that he'll lift up his countenance upon us, and so that's why I think that, you know, theological terminology is important, but if we can get behind the term beatific vision of beholding, you know, God in his glory, then, and we, we point to these scriptural texts, then we can get people over that initial hurdle of saying, oh, this is a, a Roman Catholic thing. You say, no, 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 it's a scriptural thing. And, and this is the term that we use, both Protestants and Roman Catholics use to describe it. But you know, it, it's it's all over the, the pages of Scripture. You know, to me, like that First John 3 passage is so key that we will be like him because we shall see him, yeah. which is, is, is an amazing thought when you think of it. And you get an inkling of that, as Scott mentioned, when Moses, you know, is in the presence of God's glory, doesn't see his face, and yet he comes down lit up like a, you know, a Roman candle. 
you know, driving fear into the heart of the Israelites. So that, that gives us, I think, a foretaste of, of what that's going to be like. Yeah. Yeah. If I can just say, add one thing to that, John, it, it also seems to me like some of this goes back to prolegomena. And, and Scott, you even uh, alluded to this a minute ago. The way that we we actually approach the theological task, it will either take us in this direction or not. And so if if theology is more than just, you know, obviously this is a character, but, you know, acquiring information about God. Though I, I bump into people all the time who think of theology that way and, and then don't want anything to do with it. But if it's it's far more than that, if if the goal is to actually contemplate God, that that is a word that in older theologians used to really hang on to, con- contemplation itself is the the goal of theology, but also something that breaks into the present, though though of course it's incomplete. My mind always goes to, I mean, each of the passages you mentioned is so key. My mind also goes to to David in Psalm 27. I just I just find it so remarkable that uh, here he is bringing forward his his driving desire, his one passion, and he says, I want to gaze at the beauty of the Lord forever. And, and then he goes on to say, and dwell in his temple. That, that, I think, not only puts the beatific vision in a whole, you know, fresh perspective, but theology itself, because suddenly theology comes alive. Uh, if this is, if this is what theology is after, well, then count me in. <laughs> uh, it, it gives a, it, uh, a certain beauty, not just as its end goal, uh, but, but ultimately the, the path to get there. And I, I, I can't help but mention one other thing. I see this, I know some of you are also pastors in the local church. It's, you know, I obviously talk about this at an academic level with PhD students and, and master's students, but I find at the local church level too, uh, it's so crucial because the way that that oftentimes Christians think about, say, uh, happiness in the Christian life, it's without any notion of the beatific vision. And so heaven becomes strange at best and maybe a bit dreaded at worst. And I find myself having to say, well, if David is right, if this really is the, the culmination of of where we are going as pilgrims. Could it be that the beatific vision, seeing God, is where our happiness will reach its climax? And and does that affect things now, so that we're not just treating God as a means to get to some happiness, which can almost sound a bit Gnostic, but we're, we're, we are seeing God himself as the source of happiness. There's a great line in Thomas Aquinas's Summa where he says, God exists, therefore he is happy. <laughs> very, very short sentence, one of his shortest. That seems to frame not just the future, but the present in a, in a whole different way. And it brings a certain happiness uh, into the Christian life that I, I sometimes, well, even personally, I sometimes, sometimes find missing or struggle with. 
Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. If I could chip this in really quickly, I think you could summarize all of this in the answer to the first question, the shorter catechism that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The idea of enjoying God goes all the way back to Augustine and if not others, but Augustine, you know, talks about the difference between use and enjoyment and mm -hmm. that you, 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 you only enjoy something for, for what it truly is in and of itself, whereas you use things, uh, you don't enjoy them. And so we're supposed to use the creation in order to enjoy God. So everything in this world, if there's a sense in which we're looking through it, not at it, so that we can see God. And, the, you know, the uh, Eric Little, the, the Scottish Olympic runner in Chariots of Fire, you know, tells his sister in the movie, in the 1980 movie, which I know seriously dates me. <laughs> it's like, oh, goodness. But, you know, he says, you know, why do you, why, why do you want to go run? Why do you want to, you know, go to the Olympics? Why don't you go to be a missionary in Scotland? And he says, because he says, God has made me fast and I feel his pleasure when I run. So he's not running for the sake of running or for his own personal enjoyment, he's running for the sake of enjoying God. And so often in this life, because we get these things backwards, we use God to enjoy the creation yeah. rather than using the creation to enjoy God. And if we have the beatific vision up there uh, as the goal, and, and somewhere I quote Scott Swain, and I don't remember where it is, and it's in, in this book I'm working on. And Scott, I don't know who you're working from because I can't remember. But, you know, all of theology and hermeneutics is preparation for the beatific vision. Uh, and that, that's the way we've got to conceive of this. And if we conceive of eschatology in this way, I think, you know, we're on a, we're on a good path. John, you mentioned Turretin earlier. And one of the things that struck me in reading Turretin's eschatology and it really ties into this kind of use and enjoyment theme in Augustine. All creatures in some way reflect God, their maker. His infinite glory is arrayed in finite forms of all the different creatures, right? Well, one theme that is very rich in the tradition, and Churton picks us up when he's talking about eschatology, and it's specifically why kind of apocalyptic literature and scripture uses the kind of imagery it does drawn from creation. He sees this as, as, as how all of God's various creatures in their various forms of goodness and in the various finite forms of joy they, they bring to us as signs beckoning us towards the one who made them, right? Who, who, could, who alone can satisfy our souls eternally, who could quench our thirst so that we're never thirsty again, and then all the kinds of imagery that, that Scripture uses to, to describe that. And I think that that does change the way we look at even the most mundane things in this world, right? They're gifts of a good God, but they're also down payments. They're, they're invitations to an even greater joy that lies before us in enjoying the one who's the source of all these finite joys. Um, they're a foretaste. And um, so it, it affirms the goodness of the world while simultaneously pointing beyond the world to, to the God who made it. Hey, that really helps me in um, reading the Old Testament where the eschatological hope of the Old Testament saints is, it's less thematic, it's less explicit. You don't, you don't get the punchlines you're looking for. But at any point, if you stop and say, so when Abraham got a son and some land, is that, is the check cashed? Is he done? Is that the whole, 
Is that the whole point of the Abraham thing? And, you know, time after time, you have to answer, no, obviously this is centered on God. The yeah. the sun is good. The land is good. All that, all those blessings are real blessings. And especially under the old covenant, the presence of God and the promise of God are, are especially mediated through those physical blessings of progeny and land, but they're not exclusively or terminally mediated there. Now, let me throw a curveball and maybe maybe someone can jump in here and take a swing. When we talk about the canon and the movement, the, the progression, the way it's, it, it escalates from, from Old Testament to New Testament, there seems to be, you know, think about you know, what we said earlier about Moses and how Moses is hidden behind the rock. He wants to see God's glory, but he will only see the backside and then you have in Deuteronomy even, though the New Testament picks up on this language as well, these statements that no one can see God and live, very emphatic. But when we come to the New Testament, Paul touches on this in a very, maybe maybe for his listeners, provocative way. You think of 2 Corinthians in particular, though he builds on this from 1 Corinthians into 2 Corinthians, and he goes right back to the Moses narrative and Moses's glowing face and the fading of, of the glow, but, but with it, the fading of, of the covenant itself. And he makes a very bold statement about his listeners, or his readers in, in the church saying, well, guess what? You now have Christ. And he goes on to talk about how the veil has been lifted, and he even brings in the Holy Spirit to say that, well, the Lord who's done this, this is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And, and so we all, with unveiled faces, are beho- behold the glory of the Lord, and are being, here's that emphasis that you mentioned, John, are being transformed are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And then he can't help but mention the Spirit again, right? <laughs> uh, for this is from the Lord who is the Spirit. What do you make of this? I mean, we in one sense, this sounds like, oh, okay, we, we need to do some biblical theology here. But in another sense, systematic theology is right, right behind us because this raises some Trinitarian questions. How, how do we understand the beatific vision in light of our doctrine of the Trinity. On the one hand, 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 does emphasize the surpassing greatness of the glory that is revealed in the preaching of the gospel relative to the old covenant. Mm. One is temporary, one is abiding, and so forth, and so forth. But there are some similarities in both cases, how is God's glory perceived by Moses? And, and Exodus 33 is very clear about this. I'm going to show you my glory, and then God proclaims his name. Mm. So the main organ of perception for seeing God's glory in, in the Old Testament is the ear, right? Yeah. And that's what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, the preaching of the gospel, and the glory of God is perceived by the, the eye of faith. And so, while on the one hand there is progression, it's still a a glory that's mediated by creaturely media. And so, First Corinthians thirteen twelve, 
Paul can even talk about gospel age revelation as being through a glass darkly in contrast to face-to-face in the life to come. So I think the relative contrast of old and new, we, we got to be careful about not overplaying it in such a way that that suggests that, you know, John Wayne 18 can still say no one has seen God yeah. in this life. At least. I'll let Fred handle the Trinity part. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think the part of the doctrine of the Trinity that matters a lot here is the doctrine of the divine, the one divine essence. And I will be surprised. So if we're talking about physical eyesight, you know, with optic rays and and uh, lenses and all that kind of stuff, I will be surprised if a physical object is set before us to be physically seen. If if you want to pursue that line, then it's going to have to be the incarnate one. And what we will see of him is not his divine essence, but his person in a created essence. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to downgrade this or anything. And like, and I, I use the language on purpose to say, I will be surprised if, you know, because we're talking about eschatology, yeah. God can surprise me, but I do take the no one has seen God to be pretty pretty binding in this case. Yeah, yeah. And when folks do talk about seeing the divine glory in essence, very clear that we're talking about an intellectual vision hmm. as opposed to physical vision. And there's actually diversity in the Reformed tradition, and maybe John, you can speak more to this, right? But even you know, Reformed theologians sometimes will exhaust their description of the beatific vision is saying, well, that just means physically seeing incarnate Son of God. Others will say it's both physically seeing the incarnate Son of God and spiritually perceiving the divine essence. And so depending kind of how you take that, you also get a different maybe Trinitarian angle. Augustine is interesting on this, if I understand him correctly. I mean, I don't think for Augustine, it's almost it's a reflection of the divine glory in, in creatures more than a perception of the divine essence, if I'm tracking and city of God, right? Y'all are nodding, so <laughs> yeah, if I'm wrong, I do find Augustine on this topic very hard. I think in the Reformed tradition, at least with the um, the Westminster Larger Catechism, they are what I would say is brilliantly ambiguous at this point, so that, it, that the statements that they make house uh, a number of different options. But like in question 86 of the Larger Catechism, it says that believers will behold the face of God in light and glory. And then in question 90, just four questions later, it says that that we will be filled with inconceivable joys. And then it says, especially in the immediate vision and fruition of God the Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, and of the Holy Spirit. So if it's saying the immediate vision, mm-hmm. but it mentions all three members of the Trinity, then it can't just be physical eyesight, which we would presume, as, as Fred said, with the incarnation. But yeah. that that immediate language, I think, goes back to Aquinas, where yeah. Aquinas talks about the immediate intellectual, uh, you know, vision uh, of, of the Godhead. And so, you know, you know, I think that that at least is a kind of an all-embracing uh, umbrella and a statement that kind of says, yeah, it's going to be all of these things. Mm-hmm. It's not just going to be intellectual. It's not just going to be visual, but it's going to be both. And it's of the triune God. Mm. Uh, so in that sense, I think the the larger catechism, you know, as reformed as it is, is deeply Catholic with a with a, a small C picking up on those themes that go back to Aquinas, Augustine, and, and many others. And John, yeah, I, you met, mentioned John Owen as well? Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. I think Owen definitely talks about these things in that light. 
Yeah. I do. I think for Aquinas, the, the, the key to this is that our, our knowledge of God will ultimately be as secure as something like God being our knowledge of God from right. within us. Mm-hmm. So, in the form of our own, yeah. Yeah. So instead of having some kind of a representational idea of God that corresponds accurately because of revelation to, well, corresponds accurately, you know, proportionally <laughs> to the reality of God in his revelation, uh, God will actually move in and personally, yeah, be the form of our understanding. And so therefore, knowledge of God we have now as pilgrims, you know, to kind of shift this into some more traditional Protestant language is sort of borrowed from or it's 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 accurate knowledge. It's true knowledge on the way to complete knowledge. Yeah. And I, I want to say the same thing. We haven't mentioned salvation proper here. I mean, is it Augustine who says that what, grace is a kind of glory begun now under conditions of nature? Yeah. Um, so there's a sense in which the knowledge of God we have now and the grace of God we experience now is what it is because of what it finally will be. So we're always borrowing from eschatology, even when we're not explicitly making it thematic. And to to Fred's point, there's two terms, you know, the the knowledge of pilgrims and then the knowledge of vision that, you know, Reformed Orthodox theologians in the 17th century distinguish those two to to make that shift between, you know, salvation now and salvation in glory. Well, on the note of Augustine, and Aquinas and and John Owen, I would say these are some some theologians that our listeners should should definitely pick up if you want to understand the beatific vision more. Scott Swain, is there a contemporary book that you would throw at them as well? Uh, yeah, in fact, I've got it right here, Matthew. <laughs> Michael Allen, grounded in heaven. Can we uh, trust Mike on this? I, what do you think? I trust him on certain topics. Uh, <laughs> Others, not so much. Don't come to Mike for recommendations related to music <laughs> or sports, but on many other topics related to theology, he's very good. Yeah, I yeah, think Mike... uh, that's a wonderful book. That's it, Its main contribution is to try to make God the center of eschatology again and to also discuss the implications of doing that for our lives right now, including a life of self-denial, which is not a topic that gets a lot of uh, discussion in contemporary theology, but if I can, you know, again, speak a little bit of praise of my chronic physical issues now for almost a decade and, and has had to think a lot about self-denial. He, he can speak with some authority on that. Hmm. And I remember visiting Mike in the hospital one time and he's walking down the hallway with those gowns that opens in the back and he's got the saints everlasting rest under his arm. Oh. He, 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 he kind of knows what he's talking about here. And so I, I, I really love that book. And it's a short book. You can read it in one sitting. And it kind of connects up to some other important contemporary discussions related to neo-Calvinism and transformationalism, some of the topics that were mentioned earlier. Hey, join us for the next episode. All four of us will be back. And we will be discussing creeds and ecclesiology and maybe a little bit more Trinity. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.